inviting you to turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. Title the message, The Promised King. Let's just unite our heart together in the word of prayer. You might pray the Lord will have a word in season, even for your soul tonight. Our gracious, eternal, loving, heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy presence. We thank Thee for the hymns of Zion we've been singing already. Lord, we pray that Thou might bless us as we come to Thy word that we have read together. Lord, give us understanding. We we have read this chapter and we have to say there are many uh, pictures, there are many analogies. We could say, Lord, there's many messages, even in this one chapter. But Lord, just close us in with this one text. We pray, Lord, that Thou might apply the word by Thy Spirit to each and every heart. Thou knowest, Lord, those who are Thine. I know us, Lord, those yet in their sin. I know us, Lord, those who are serving the King tonight. Lord, I know us also those that are serving the old master, the devil. We pray, Lord, that there will be a work of translation done, brought from the kingdom of Satan under the power of God. Lord, we confess man cannot do that. A church cannot do that. Only God can do that. And we pray that thou would have thine own way tonight. Fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words. Lord, I pray thou would bless every waiting heart for Jesus' sake. Amen. Won't be long before attention will be turned to the coronation of the new king. No doubt we will say that on that day or approaching that day there will be mixed emotions. It may be for many a day of great jubilation, an occasion of rejoicing and celebration. But for others, that will not be so. Their emotions will be so different because you see they're against the monarchy. They would rather have a, a republic and a president. There's no doubt, however, of the emotion that is expressed from the pen of the prophet Zechariah. As he comes to write upon a very similar theme. I've already shared with you the backdrop to this man's prophecy. Of how God raised him in Haggai as his servants, and he raised them up during the time where the work on the rebuilding of the temple had halted. Fifty strong remnant, 50,000 that is, strong remnant had come back from Babylon and back to the city, and they had started the work, but they had halted. And yet they hadn't halted in building their own houses, and there was to be a consideration of their ways. And God raised up Haggai and God raised up Zechariah to stir up the people to complete the work that they had started. And part of that stirring would occur because of the encouragement that they would receive from the mouth of this prophet. 
a series of eight visions would indicate to them as a nation that God hadn't forgotten them. Oh yes, they had known judgment because of their sin. They had done wickedly in God's sight. But there's mercy with the Lord. And while it seemed, humanly speaking, that Israel was beyond the point of ever been rescued from the snare of, the, of heathen kings, yet nothing is too hard for the Lord. The start of chapter 9 speaks of judgment. Judgment poured out upon Damascus first. But then you'll notice there is the prospect of all the eyes of men looking toward the Lord. And if we had time, we could go to chapter 12 of this same book, and there we would uh, see words where it speaks of them looking unto the one whom they have pierced, and mourning as of one for a son. Is not a tremendous thought? That the nation that put Christ to death on the cross will yet look even to the very Son of God. But in this chapter, we're brought to see some words that depict the coming of the true king. Not a false king. Not a heathen king of some other nation that would be used as an instrument in order to subdue Israel because of their sin, as God had done so in the past. But their words which cause us to consider the promised king. The one of whom was spoken of by the prophets before Zechariah and now by him. I want us to enter into these words. I want you to see how detailed this picture really is. Because what is in view is the first coming of the Redeemer King. My text, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy King cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt of the foal of an ass. You'll notice, first of all, the Deliverer. Anytime you come across the word behold in the Scriptures, it should be considered as important. It should be a little indicator for you to stop. Especially when that behold is linked with a person. And in the Old Testament there are four significant beholds concerning the person of Christ. Isaiah has three of them. Behold my servant. Behold your God. Behold the man. And here's the fourth one. Behold thy king. And men and women, there's a lovely thought there before we go any further, that each of those characteristics correspond to how the gospel narratives depict the promised Savior that was to come. He is depicted in those gospels as the king, as the servant, as the God-man, as God. Matthew Mark, Luke, 
and John. It's just like if there was some incident happened up the town and there was four of us up there and we come back from that incident and your recording of it will be slightly different than mine or someone else's. And so it is with the gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit they bring out various aspects of the Lord's character, of the Lord's ministry. John set apart from the other three because his is a divine gospel. He speaks of Christ as God. Whereas Matthew, he is the gospel of the kingship. And so you could work it out, the other two as well. And our verse causes us to focus upon the king. But you will note that he does not say, a king. But he says, behold, thy king. He is thine own long-promised, long-expected king. The one who was promised, even though as a nation they had earthly kings, during this time, sitting upon their throne. If you turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 32. Look at Isaiah 32 in the words of verse 1. It says, Behold, there's another behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. I'll give you one other text. Jeremiah chapter 23 and the words of verse 5. Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. This king would be no like, like no other. He would be a, his would be a righteous reign. He would not come for a physical earthly deliverance as many of the Jews had expected. But his will be a spiritual reign and his will be a spiritual deliverance. He who is above all the kings of the earth would be their king and will be their savior. His kingdom will be to absorb all the kingdoms of the earth as the king of kings and lord of lords. Before I go on, have you beheld this king? Is he yours? You see this king of whom he writes, was coming. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Zechariah is saying to the people, Behold, your king is coming. He's at the door. Just a very short time and age, and then he will be here. He's coming to Zion. He's coming to Israel. As man, he would be born of her, but as God made flesh, he was coming to her. It's a wee bit like Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This king would take upon himself the form of our nature. He would be born of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Yet his coming would be no ordinary coming, for he is from everlasting to everlasting. It's interesting to think of the words, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Do you see the words unto thee? They can also mean for thy good. The one spoken of, the one who was coming, would do so as their deliverer. He would do them good. And men and women, we have in these words a language that draws us to consider irresistibly Christ. 
In the Old Testament, he's the promised Messiah. He's the king whose kingdom shall know no end. He will be like no other as we shall see. But he came to do sinful, lost mankind good. There's only one deliverer. That is Christ Jesus. The one whose name was to be called such. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And I tell you on the authority of this book that he will do thee good. You remember Moses and we referred to Jethro this morning just briefly. Well Jethro is one of those characters. He has another name. He's called Hobab. In Numbers chapter 10. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Hobab, come with us and we will do thee good. And men and women, I say tonight, on the authority of God's word, come to Christ and he'll do thee good. He can only do good. You understand that? You can't say that of any other. Men will let you down. Men will tell lies. Men will make promises and break them. He'll not do you good, but he can only do thee good. He went about Israel doing good, healing all that were oppressed, for God was with him. I wonder tonight, have you tasted and seen that he is good? Is this coming king spoken of, your deliverer? For that is what the sinner experiences In salvation, there's a deliverance from the lost and ruined condition that Adam's fall has left us in. There's a deliverance from the snares of the devil and from the bondage of sin. And he has come for thee. He has said, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. I have left before you the deliverer. But I want you to see also here the description. The prophet called of God to present the message of God to these people was to proceed to describe the one who was promised to come. Their king was coming to them and so as there wouldn't be any mistake, there follows a description that is fulsome. This coming king who would deliver was first of all just. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. The rendering is righteous. He's one who had a right cause. He wasn't merely one righteous in character. And mind you, that would be different. That would be unique. For of course, the scriptures remind us in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. But he's righteous. He's more than righteous merely in character. But his life and his manner would animate his righteousness. His righteous rule would be seen. His rule would be just and according to the rules of equity. His judgment would be according to truth because he is righteous. How many kings of Israel down through the centuries of time had sat upon their throne and we read that they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab comes to mind immediately. Married to old Jezebel, wicked Jezebel. One of the worst kings that ever sat on the throne of Israel. A man that sought to have a foot in both camps. The worship of Baal and the worship of God. But this king is just. He's righteous. Something else. He's coming having salvation. 
You'll see even by the margin, if you have a marginal Bible, that there's another rendering of that word. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee as just and having salvation or saving himself. And we'll come to that. The one whom the prophet speaks about is coming as the Savior. He's endowed with salvation. Because that would be his mission. And how that corresponds to the Lord as spoken of in the New Testament Scriptures. That's why he was given his name. That was his errand from heaven's glory. It was to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ Jesus came into the world. What to do? To save sinners. And if it is taken in another tense, then the same truth is forthcoming. Not merely that he's coming with salvation, but that he is saved or saving. And if the king of Israel is saved, then it follows that so are his people whom he represents. His salvation is a sure sign that all that follow him shall be saved too. I wonder, are you counted among the followers of this king tonight? Have you experienced his personal salvation? There's another descriptive word here, and that is having salvation lowly. It means afflicted or poor. It gathers up the whole of the lowly, miserable, suffering condition of the righteous servant of God. Isaiah reveals that as he stated, he was despised and rejected of men. Man of sorrows, unacquainted with grief. Men and women, the one who was prophesied of, the one who was promised to come was to do so in great lowliness. He was born in a lowly stable. He was brought up in lowly Nazareth in a poor home. For when Mary was to bring the Christ child to the temple at eight days of age, her offering was the offering of the poor, of two turtle doves or pigeons. You'll find it in Luke chapter 2. Nathaniel asked, can any good come out of Nazareth? It was a lowly outback town. It was a place where nothing was heard tell of. And yet Christ was brought up in lowly Nazareth. In his life there was his poverty. He could say, foxes of hold, the birds of the air of nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And that lowly position was to continue right to death. For he died between two thieves. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The following words in verse 9 illustrate that poverty and illustrate that lowliness better than any example that I could ever give. Do you see it? Lowly and riding upon an ass. One of you ever thought of that? The type of ass is also given in the following words. It would be the coat, the foal of an ass. In other words, a young animal that wasn't broken. An animal that would still be accustomed to run behind the she-asses. You know, there's great significance with this. And the significance is to be understood because there's the thought of lowliness, but also an outward sign that his coming was for the purpose of peace. And I want to explain both of them. How that has arrived, that is because in the Eastern setting, it was the custom of kings to ride upon asses, but only until the horses were introduced. 
And when the horses were introduced, thereafter the ass was despised for such a purpose. There's no comparison, we would say. With the introduction of horses, it was no longer considered to be an honorable or a dignified thing for a king to ride on on an ass. And so from the time of Solomon, we do not meet with a single example of a king or indeed any that was in a position of power to be found riding upon an ass. If you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17, you'll have a couple of verses here, or one verse here that brings out the point. Jeremiah 17 verse 25. Then shall there enter into the gates of the city kings and princes, sitting upon the throne of David, listen, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And there's a quite clear picture that is shown there. The kings are coming. They're riding through the gates of the great city. But they're in all their splendor and all their finery. They're sitting in their chariots and the horses. There's no mention of the ass. And so when this promised king is presented in Zechariah's prophecy, as riding upon an ass, it's in keeping with the idea of lowliness. He wouldn't be found riding the horse. And at the same time, in contrast to the horse, the horse that was a symbol of war, the horse that was used in war, the ass upon which Israel's Redeemer, King, would come is one that symbolizes the peaceable character of his mission. It's my task to have left to you the one who is spoken of as the just, as the righteous servant of Jehovah, as the bringer of salvation, lowly and afflicted, yet one who is able to save and one who is able to give peace to the troubled soul tonight. Do you know him? Do you have this peace that passeth all understanding? You see, the Lord spoke about it to his own disciples in that upper room on different occasions. But I'll just give you John 16, verse 33. He said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Where can you find peace tonight? Not on a preacher. It's not in this church. It's not in a denomination or any denomination or any church. It is only in Christ. In Him. You can find peace for your soul. For you see, Paul reminds us that he made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, and the words of verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. How can you be reconciled tonight to a holy God? 
That should be your earnest desire of heart. How can I be reconciled to a holy God tonight? I, the sinner born of Adam's race, I, the lawbreaker. It's only through the one who has obtained peace through the blood of his cross, through the sacrifice for sin that he offered upon Mount Calvary. You see, men and women, we've seen the deliverer and we've seen the description. I want you to notice the fulfillment. Because the prophet here exhorts a rejoicing. That's how he starts the text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. And there's cause for praise for the one who was promised to come. These words must speak of Christ himself. And they are fulfilled in him. The promised Messiah is Zion's king. The Lord Jesus Christ. He was born king as the verse, uh, as the wise men asked Herod when they came in Matthew chapter 2, where is he that is born king of the Jews? That gives you a little indicator of what the theme of Matthew's gospel right, right through his chapters is, bringing out the kingship of Christ. It was the very inscription on the cross as well, the king of the Jews. Oh, the Pharisees and those of the chief priests objected to Herod about that title or our pilot to change that title, but they wouldn't. And that title expresses an unbreakable relationship between Christ and Israel. Their eyes are blinded. Their cry tonight, this night is, we will not have this man to rule over us. The days continue in which they do not have a king and they do not have a prince. But nevertheless, Christ Jesus is Zion's king and one day they shall recognize him sure as he died on the cross. And one day he shall reign upon King David's royal throne. This king cometh unto thee. When I read that the first time, did you think of John 1 and 11? For there John records he came unto his own. But they received him not. His very own possession his own estate in terms of the people and the land. And he had a right to expect a welcome from and to be greeted with enthusiastic joy as depicted here by this prophet, but his own, by reason of a peculiar and special relationship who ought to have prepared for him as a bride for her bridegroom, received him not. Is that true of you tonight? You've heard about the king often. You've heard about him coming. But you've received him not. It's also true that he alone throughout all history can be alone described as the righteous one. For in him there was no sin. He could not sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Christ always loved righteousness and hated iniquity. This is the altogether lovely one. And for us sinful lost mankind, he became us. He took that humble place of taking upon himself our nature yet without sin. He was that poor and afflicted one. Paul gives us a summary. Turn over to Philippians uh, chapter 2. And you see his lowliness. Chapter 2 of Philippians in the words of verse 7 and 8. It simply says this. But he made himself of no reputation. 
and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in a fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He said himself, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest upon your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. The invitation given. Men and women, young people of Christ alone, it can be said that he is endowed with salvation. He is the bringer of salvation to all who will come. Because it was he himself saved or delivered or made victorious in the greatest battle when he came to wage war on our behalf against the powers of darkness. The chief priests and others mocked him. As they stood around the foot of the cross, they said, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He saved others himself. He cannot save. In their ignorance and unbelief, they were uttering an eternal truth. For it was because he had come to save others that he was to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And that's why he could not save himself. That's why he would not come down from the cross. For had he have come down from the cross, you couldn't be saved, sir, madam, young person. The work wouldn't be finished. But that's why he endured the cross and he despised the shame. But God was satisfied with that once for all sacrifice from sin. For God delivered him from the pains of death. He would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And because he lives as the only Redeemer, as the only mediator between God and man, then all who come to him can know eternal salvation and never die. It is this promised king who is the author of salvation to all who seek him. The last part of verse 9, it received a literal fulfillment in the Savior's triumphant procession and entry into the city of Jerusalem. He is just in having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. But understand, that being true, that this prophecy by Zechariah had not that as his main focus or purpose. That single incident in the life of the Savior nearing that time where he would go to the cross was not the point that the prophet has in view. But rather it was the whole of the Savior's life. This is a prophecy of his first coming. His entry into Jerusalem declares that these words are indeed messianic. And what follows in verse 10 is also about this same king. 
but they concern his second coming. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. From the depths of his humiliation and poverty, the prophet is directed to the glory now that shall follow. God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And at one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. The glory that follows is found in verse 10 where the blessed Redeemer King returns to Zion. And its effects, it will have worldwide effect upon it. For it is his dominion in verse 10 that will be from sea to sea, from the river, even unto the ends of the earth. It's then that he shall subdue, and he shall trod beneath his feet every enemy, and he shall reign supreme. King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee then shall bow, every tongue confess he is Lord. I wonder, will you bow the knee tonight as he speaks in tenderness and in tones of grace and mercy to your soul? I wonder, will you have done with your sin and take Christ as your Savior and as your Redeemer? And come that day when he shall gather up his own from the four winds of the earth, you'll be among that great company and you shall reign with him as king of kings. God's people will reign with him. May God help you to see it. And may God help you to crown this promise king as king of your life now. For I close with the final words of the chapter. For how great is his goodness. And how great is his beauty. Up till now you haven't seen that. You're just like the Jew. Your eyes are blinded. But he is altogether lovely. Will you come? Will you come and confess your sin and accept this promised king who reigns tonight? Not merely coming to reign, but he reigns tonight on the throne above. The Lord help you to do so. May God bless his word to each of our, uh, on all of our hearts.